Psalm 131. A song of ascents of David. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul, like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Please, let's pray. Gracious Holy Spirit, we ask you now to illumine your word to us. We thank you for the good gift of your word and that you so wish to share it with us. Amen. A song of ascents. The songs of ascents are from 120 to 134 in the Psalms. We sang one earlier as well. Eight or more possibilities have been discussed about what in the world a song of ascents could be. So whether these are sung by the uh, pilgrims making their way up to the heights ascending to Jerusalem for the annual feast, or perhaps sung by the captives on their return from Babylon, or as Calvin favored, simply to be sung with an elevation of the voice. We should not miss the irony of the particular subject of this song of ascents, Psalm 131, as we ascend to worship, as we lift our voices to God, do we likewise grow in stature or import? Or do we rise to God in meekness and humility, both in worship and in the whole of our lives? Consider David, and we'll look at him again in just a moment. He removed his kingly garments when the ark returned after much time. He put on common linen, and he danced before the Lord with all his might. Michael, the uh, daughter of Saul, his wife, saw him and despised him in her heart. How glorious was the king, shamelessly uncovering himself like the base fellows. David responded, it was before the Lord. I will be even more undignified and will be humble in my own sight. Let's leave our kingly garments at home. Let's be willing to be more and more abased. A song of ascents of David. David speaks of himself in this psalm. Without looking at his actual last words, who was David? Second Samuel 23, 1 says, now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. A son of Jesse by birth, raised up on high by God's providence, anointed by Samuel of, of God. When in 1 Samuel 16, 13, the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And much, much later, and that's the whole point of this psalm, anointed finally as king of Judah and Israel by the elders. But why the sweet psalmist of Israel? Sweet in quantity, certainly. He's ascribed nearly half of the psalms. But he likely wrote many more. But how can we be sure... In in quality, sweetness, in quality. The easy answer is because they are the very word of God. But who then better to write them 
than David, who knew they could sing this, he could sing this song about himself. Because as we will see, number one, the Lord had given him the spirit to do all his will and nothing more. Number two, to wait on God's timetable. And number three, with hope in the Lord alone. David bore up under the false accusation of pride by his eldest brother Eliab in 1 Samuel 17, even as an errand boy running back and forth between feeding the sheep at home and delivering literally groceries, bread and cheeses to his brothers on the battlefield. Then David spoke to the man who stood by him, the men who stood by him when he heard Goliath's challenge. Now, they had heard it something like 39 or 40 times. He heard it the first time saying, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was aroused against David, and he said, why did you come here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? You see, David's cause was God's cause. And so we could stand nearly bare that day before the giant, armed in faith and trust and humility, not having a cause apart from God. Now let's turn to the psalm in whole. Charles Spurgeon wrote in his Treasury of David, This psalm is a pearl, and how beautifully it will adorn the neck of patience. It is one of the shortest songs to read, but one of the longest to learn. It speaks of a young child, but it contains the experience of a man in Christ. In verse 1, he begins, Lord, my heart is not haughty. Children, to be haughty means to be proud. He is saying, Lord, my heart is not proud. First, see that David was a man after God's own heart. In verse 1, he confesses what God already knew about him, that he was not haughty. But certainly we know that the heart can lead to both good and evil. And when the heart overflows to the mouth or to the hands and the feet swift and running to mischief, other people can then see the condition and take the temperature of our heart. It is evident to them. But God sees the secret cravings of the heart before they even manifest themselves in the flesh. We just read of Eliab judging David wrongly of pride. And so it's interesting that the first time we met Eliab, someone judged him wrongly, even the prophet Samuel. God sent Samuel behind King Saul's back to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. Seven of his sons were paraded in front of him, and Eliab, the oldest, was the first. In 1 Samuel 16, 6 through 7. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his outward appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It was to be the eighth son, David, who was overlooked, who had to be called in from tending those sheep. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for he is the one. And what was God looking at but David's heart? We know this because Samuel had already told King Saul. The kingdom of of King Saul would not continue because the Lord sought a man after his own heart. Secondly, Christians are to be those after God's own heart. 
As such, we put away pride and take on humility. Consider what pride looks like. We need to look no further than King Saul, who failed to obey the word of God to destroy the Amalekites completely, down to even their livestock. 1 Samuel 15, Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? When you were little, in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. When you were little in your own eyes, Samuel diagnosed the pride evident in Saul's heart, heard plainly in the bleeding of the sheep. Saul had become great in his own eyes and self-important. Elsewhere in scripture, pride is phrased likewise as when you were little in your own eyes. Proverbs 26.12, being wise in our own eyes. Romans 12.3, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Romans 12.16, being wise in our own opinion. And Galatians 6.3, thinking we are something when we are nothing. Pride is at the root of all sin, and pride is universal in all. Charles Spurgeon preached, no matter our conditions, we universally dream we have something to glory about. The Lord Mayor is not a bit prouder in his gold chain than the beggar in his rags. Indeed, pride is a kind of weed that will grow on very poor soil quite, quite as freely as in the best cultivated garden. Look into your own heart, and if you dare to be proud, you've never seen your heart at all. So we must put away pride in our hearts and take on humility first because God hates pride as an abomination in Proverbs 16.5. Secondly, because God demands humility. Micah 6.8. He's shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Third, because God actively opposes the proud and reinforces the humble. James 4.6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Nor my eyes lofty, David says. Certainly, the loftiness of the eyes can be one of those symptoms of a proud heart. Consider how a heart greedy for gain can cause us to cast our gazes enviously at worldly treasures or in covetousness at the position or influence of another. But the eyes can actually drive the heart. Into further pride, do you understand that? This is so because, as Matthew tells us, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. So if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And lofty eyes can lead one to either look with contempt on those seen as inferior or else to look with envy upon our superiors. And from there, it is a short road to criticality and bitterness thinking we could have done better, or if they do well, seeking to nitpick and tear them down, if only in our thoughts. As with David, we should tend not only to our heart, but to our eyes. Consider the parable of the Pharisee, who looked around rather than looking inward at the real problem. Turn to Luke 18. 
Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus. We did that. Uh, Tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. David says, neither do I concern myself with great matters. What is meant by not concerning himself with great matters? The verb here literally means to walk. And so this deals with our pursuits in life, both where we walk and how we walk, in what posture. Now, David was certainly honored, highly and in fact possessed offices and thrones far above most any. So this does not mean a prohibition on doing great pursuits, but of being outside the word and the calling of God. How does this principle translate to the Christian walk? First, certainly, we must see where providence seems to lead. But are we prayed up? Not in a formulaic sense, but we must be especially careful in times of spiritual depression to be circumspect, considering motives, thoughts, speech and doings. To get to not get the spiritual cart ahead of the horse. It is easy to flatter ourselves, isn't it, that we are suffused in humility while, in fact, we are driven on by prideful flesh. So let us, number one, check our desires, our ambitions and our opinions of what ought to be. And number two, examine our motives and methods. Are we planning, calculating, plotting in the worst sense of those words? For as commentator William Plumer wrote. Finesse is not wisdom. Two major examples of David not finessing the throne. First Samuel 24, David and his men were hiding in a cave from Saul and his men being hunted. And David entered that cave alone in the dark, close enough for David to touch him. His men were goading him. Do it. Do it. Seize the throne. But David was determined to not slay the man God had anointed. And later shouted to Saul, my father. And think about that speech. My father. Yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Let the Lord judge between you and me. And in 1 Samuel 26, David and Abishai entered King Saul's camp at night. A spear planted firmly in the ground right next to Saul's head. And David refused to let Abishai kill the king, taking only the king's spear and water jug as proof that David had spared Saul again. David willingly waited on the Lord in humility because he trusted in the Lord's promise that he would be king in time and not by his own ability. Submission and contentment were the rule for David. And they should be for us as well. Practically speaking, Matthew Henry says, those will fall under due shame that affect undue honors. And isn't, didn't Christ warn of such? Turn to Luke 14. 
Luke 14, 7 through 11. So he told a parable to those who were invited. And when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that he who has invited you, when he comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will give, then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who, ex- who humbles himself will be exalted. Choose the lowly, unassuming path, lest we be in need of correction by our loving heavenly father. We must temper our desires and not act rashly. It is a principle of the godly life that we will be most at ease when we confine ourselves to our calling and to our abilities. I did not say that the Christian walk is easy, but I am saying that Christ's burden is light and his yoke is easy on our necks, as in Matthew 11. Now consider this test for checking unlawful ambition. Robert Murray McShane said, It has always been my aim and it is my prayer to have no plan as regards myself. Well assured as I am that the place where the Savior sees me to place me must ever be the best place for me. Saul, or David goes on to say, nor with things too profound for me. We must not think that we can or should or that we have a right to know the understanding of the workings of providence and the rationale or seeming irrationality behind it. Especially as to exactly how, as in Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those that love the Lord to those who are the called according to his purpose. It is not for us to strive after and know the machinations of God, but to trust in his promises of life and provision. Most importantly, it is God who is in in his eternal counsel has chosen his elect for salvation. So if you have been striving through human effort and praying for the salvation of another, pray and trust. Likewise, do not recklessly reply against God, who in his providence has not yet given you the full measure of the spirit to wholly conquer your flesh, perhaps as to a particularly plaguing sin. Resist temptation, but pray and trust that he who has formed you like this will see to your sanctification. Consider some striving saints in the Bible and how it went for them. Job, when rebuked by God for his rash words, could only say, I am vile. I lay my hand over my mouth, which he should have done in the first place. And as with David, things too profound for me. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And consider Sarah when she laughed to scorn the promise of God. In Genesis 18, and the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, 
but she did laugh. But consider how Mary approached holy mysteries. The angel Gabriel announced the birth of Christ and John the Baptist. Mary said, behold, the maid servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. When the shepherds brought tidings to her from the angelic chorus, it is written that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. In silent contemplation of God, when Simeon blessed Jesus in the temple, Mary marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Look at her joy and contrast it with Sarah's fear. And when Jesus was lost by his parents and found in the temple, he replied, why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? It's written that his mother kept all these things in her heart. Moving on to verse 2, David says, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul. This is a calmness that lends itself to quietude. Really? Having a quiet attitude. Having command of oneself. Self-control. Being able to bring oneself together in silence. Really, it's a quiet that favors meditation. On our good and loving Heavenly Father, just as with Mary. And Proverbs tells us that where there are many words, it's an axiom, where there are many words, sin is not lacking. To not be hasty in our words, and especially to not be so sure we need to express our opinion as if the future is hinged upon it. And James 1.19 says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear. That's not the, ma- the mouth. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, slow to wrath. But our, our flesh and the world we live in resists this idea of calming and silencing ourselves as too passive. We must always be acting, achieving, doing. And this attitude is excused too often because, well, Thus and such happened to me, so now I've got to do this other thing. Like a chess match where we're always screaming, scheming. But we do well to understand that trust is not passive, but a call to action. Number one, to let go of things. And number two, to take on the posture of a child in heart. And John Calvin, anyway, saw such excuse making as counterproductive. The quiet of soul David alludes to is opposed to those tumultuous desires by which many cause disquietude to themselves and are the means of throwing the world into agitation. David says, Surely I've called and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. This is a child already weaned off of nursing who is now content to lie upon its mother without complaint, without clamoring for its former sustenance. Here David declares himself as a weaned child. Now, we understand that the weaned child lies upon its mother and is satisfied simply to be with its mother, trusting that the mother will provide what it needs in her own loving judgment. Likewise, the Christian must act as the weaned child, being contented with God's presence alone. And not for all the earthly treasures God could provide if he chose. The Christian must not say, 
the Lord should do thus and such for me. But the Christian says the Lord will do what is best for his glory and for me. The Christian is contented to be shaped and formed and reshaped and reformed ever closer to the image of God's son by the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Now, feminine imagery like this, a weaned child with his mother, is used elsewhere to uniquely express the love of God for us. And how so? Because we all understand the love and tenderness of a mother. Isaiah 66, 12 through 13 says, Then you shall feed, on her side shall you be carried, and be dandled on her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I, God, will comfort you. So we finished the masculine mandate by Richard Phillips in men's breakfast yesterday, and I had this sermon drawn up a certain way, and um, I'm still going to rail against another form of masculine Christian masculinity book. But um, thank you, Chet. This, this, it was incredible, and um, basically the last chapter is this sermon in a nutshell. Uh, I mean, what have you already heard? He says, John 3.27, John the Baptist, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. The author says, John's point was that men must content themselves with the place and provision the sovereign God gives them, seeking only to be faithful to one's particular calling. Sounds just like Robert McMurray, McMurray McShane must ever be the best place for me. He, he says it's, this would be an antidote to jealousy, strife, and selfish ambition like we talked about, replaced by a God-centered ambition. Remember, David, he had no cause but God's cause. And we are to work in, and keep in whatever corner of the kingdom God has placed us. And he even concludes with examples of saints. David, the man after God's own heart, and Mary, the maidservant of, of the Lord. So praise the Lord for that. Read the book and come to men's uh, breakfast. The average age, sorry, Chet, but I sat there doing some math. The average age appeared to be 52 and a half years, which is my age. So if you're under that age, come on out and help sharpen us as well. Let's move forward together. But I want to say, in some of the Christian masculinity books I've read, I've been told that every man needs a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. But I've rarely read... I said never before, but I have rarely read that the Christian man must be content to lie still and quiet and never to aspire to be dandled on the knees of God. In fact, I've seen books like Wild at Heart come with a strong undercurrent of resentfulness for a man's upbringing. For example, that that every man has been wounded by his father, a wound which is at the root of how messed up we are. Someone actually got paid to write a book that man is messed up and father's sin. Contrast that philosophy with Charles Spurgeon. To the weaned child, his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forego the joys which once appeared to be essential and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. Then we behave manfully and every childish complaint is hushed. If the Lord removes our dearest delight, we bow to his will without a murmuring thought. And isn't this what Jesus called us to? Turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. 
18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Do you think Jesus was calling us to be his children who are, in, or who are foolish and in need of correction? He called us to adopt a childlike humility, to be small while wholly trusting in God, as with David. David concludes, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. And here is the key to why David could say such marvelous things in verses 1 and 2. His hope was in the Lord and not in himself and not in anything he could have grasped in this world, even the throne of David. David cultivated an eternal spiritual hope and not a manufactured hope in the things that pass with time. He had the mindset of Colossians 3.2. Set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. This is the heavenly treasure of Matthew 6. My wife has taught me a lot about hope. And the message is getting through. It uh, it may come as a shock to you, but I have a bit of the... Uh, melancholy personality. But who told us it was not going to be a war? If you're not a Christian, then put your pride behind you and be dandled on the knees of God and then really live. And Christian, reading the reading of the law in Psalm... Uh, in Psalm 130, remember, we prayed that for the, the reading of the law. The psalmist said, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. We must gird on our sword and run to the battle. Read it and know it. And if you have not read it, then pick it up and get to work. His word is our sufficiency and our hope. In Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, it reads, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a, a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Even as David concludes the psalm from this time forth and forever, Two points of application. First, become as the weaned child, resting contentedly, fully trusting in God for all we need, not as we see it, but as God rightly understands it. How? Matthew Henry said of this psalm, when our condition is not to our mind, we must bring our mind to our condition. First, we must pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. And then we must, number one, fight the very real battle that every weaned child has ever had to fight. Putting away the pining after and complaining for the things of this world, our former loves, and actively letting go 
and being number two, hushed and still and quiet, moving our attention from the flesh to the spirit. And as with David, consider Christ. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you. Do you hear Matthew Henry? Bring our mind to our condition. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And Christ became obedient to that death on the cross by actively submitting his will to his father's. As the wean child does. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And secondly, in application, realize the hope of a life lived not in the turmoils of striving for this world, but in submission to the provision of the Father. We will then understand that the wounds we have received and will receive in this world are no more than those the father intended lay on by his hand in loving dis- in loving discipline the person who wrongs you or wronged you in the past is an instrument in the hands of god so put off bitterness and embrace especially the brother in christ who wronged you and both of you will to do better in conclusion Hebrews 12:9 through 11 says furthermore we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live for they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present but painful Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that, oh, church, is hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for helping us to come humbly into your presence today. God, help us to be careful Exactly what kingly garments we put back on ourselves when we walk out of here. Maybe some of them we don't need to put back on again at all. God, we rejoice in you and thank you for hearing our prayers. Amen. We'll now come to the table.